Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Good to have you with us. Faith at Works, working our way through the book of James. We've got this week, one more week, we'll be finished up. And uh, we're looking at James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12 this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I would, uh, we're going to talk about perseverance this morning, patience. And so what I would like to do is start with an IQ test. You guys ready? Not an intelligence quotient test, but how about an irritation quotient test? You guys good with that? Let's just see what your irritation quotient is, and uh, particularly as we talk about uh, perseverance and patience. Uh, so here's some questions. I'll give you some options with each of these questions. Here's the first question. When driving, do I need to go any further than that? Some of you are already irritated, okay? When driving, how often do you use your horn? Number one, one, rarely if ever. Two, is needed at least once a day. That's number two. Number three, it's the most used part of my car. Okay, how many would say three? Yeah, okay. Here's the next question. At a restaurant, how often do you complain about food? One, never. Two, only if it's cold or there are too many bugs in it. Number three, regularly, and I go out to my car and honk the horn until they get it right. <laughs> Here's your third question. While waiting in an, an express checkout line at the supermarket, I, one, meditate quietly or visualize world peace. Number two, count to see if anyone has more than 12 items. Anybody do that? Okay, hey, get out of here. Number three, threaten anyone who looks as if they're going to use coupons. So uh, let's talk about patience. Let's talk about perseverance. Look at your notes here, and this is kind of the opening statement here. Uh, our modern culture of impatience and instant gratification is the least able to develop perseverance in us than any other culture in history. Um, look at some of the features in our culture. We've gone from type or handwritten letters sent U.S. postage, post office, U.S. post office, to email letters with just the click of the mouse. Uh, we've gone from shopping malls, some shopping malls are closing down because of this, to shopping online with the click of a mouse. We've gone from three to four day delivery to same day delivery of merchandise. In fact, most companies won't stay in business if they can't get that merchandise to you within a day. We've gone from grocery shopping with screaming kids to click it and they bring the groceries to your car. We've gone from no internet do you guys remember those days? Okay, some of you are really old. Uh, actually, you don't have to be that old because it wasn't that long ago. But, but so to no internet, we've gone from no internet to dial-up internet. You've got mail. You guys remember that? To high-speed internet. We've gone from watching, waiting to watch our favorite TV program from week in to week out to streaming all the episodes to binge watch. We've gone, gone from home phones with Party Line. How many remember Party Line? Isn't that crazy? That's, so that's, some people don't even know what we're talking about there. Some, 
So home phones with party line to pagers to everyone has a cell phone. Does anyone here not have a cell phone? Just curious. We'll, we'll. There was two people in the audience last night that ha had no cell phone, so we raised some money to buy them a cell phone. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, um, <clears throat> And so we've gone from looking, looking something up in an encyclopedia. Anybody know what an encyclopedia is? <laughs> what is an encyclopedia? So we've gone from there to Google it to just ask Siri. There you go. So here's, here's the point that I'm making. Our technology and consumer capitalism is not only confirming but conforming to our culture of impatience and instant gratification. And don't get me wrong, I love one-click shopping, okay? I love it. I get all my books on Kindle, and when a book comes out that I want, I got it. I just click, boop, it's there, and I'm reading it. So I love all of that, but, but still we've got to keep in mind that we live in this culture of impatience and instant gratification. Let me give you a few quotes here. Paul Brand, a famous orthopedic surgeon who spent half of his life working in India and Asia and the other half in America, here's what he said about modern societies. People in modern societies, talking of the United States, people in modern societies live at a greater comfort level but seem far less equipped to handle suffering and are far more traumatized by it. That's the culture we live in. Psychology Today did some research and found that there are more college students needing treatment for anxiety, depression, addictions, and anger than ever. For several decades, young American adults on college campuses are becoming less resilient. This is what they said, and I quote from this article. For young American adults, there is no psychic middle ground. No psychic middle ground. Mere frustration catapults into crisis. So we go from frustration right into crisis. There's no middle ground. That middle ground would be called patience or perseverance. So, so my question is, where are we going to get this perseverance that we desperately need for real life? Because real life, in real life, perseverance is crucial to our success uh, for, for the development of, of good, strong relationships, for marriage, for parenting, for spiritual maturity, for physical fitness, for career advancement. We need perseverance just in dealing with the normal difficulties and suffering of, of life. And, uh, and I happen to believe that the Christian faith, the Christian faith gives us incomparable resources for the development of perseverance. So we're going to look at three questions here. What is perseverance? When do we need it? And how do we get it? That's where we're headed. I believe our text teaches us all those three, gives us those, the answers to those three questions. And, and I just want to tell you before we pray here is that this message has special relevance to my family because my father went home to be with the Lord this last week. And um, so, so if I tear up from time to time, you will know why as I'm continuing to work through that. And my mom is a great example of perseverance as she took care of my dad for the last four to five years with severe dementia. And so there was, it was kind of a load lifted because he went to be with Jesus and yet we're still sad. It's really sad. So, so, and also, just keep in mind too, my, my wife has been helping her father 
also who is dying with stage four cancer, and he's not doing so well. So we're kind of getting, getting it, uh, getting hammered a bit. So here's what I would ask you to do. We're going to pray here. Would you pray for me and my family, and uh, pray for and pray for the many people here in our fellowship. There are people here that have lost loved ones, and so you guys know exactly what we're going through. And so those that have lost loved ones over the last year or so, and uh, we're going to pray. We're going to ask God to speak to us through this message. He will. He always does. He loves us, and he's going to give us some really great resources so that we can learn how to persevere through suffering. So would you bow your heads with me? Let's just take a moment. Let's pray. And so, Father, oh, we love you. We're thankful for your presence. And your word promises us in Isaiah 40, 31, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And so as we wait for you, as we trust, as we hope, as we cling to you through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, strengthen the weary this morning. Soften the hearts of the angry. Make your presence real to the lonely. Give hope to the grieving. Lavish your love upon those full of worry, fear, and anxiety. Give rest to the restless and open our eyes to your indescribable greatness and unimaginable goodness, we pray in your son's glorious name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Let me read through the text, um, and uh, you will see this. In fact, as I read through it, look for all the times he uses the word patience, and we'll define it in a minute, and then also he's going to use the word steadfastness. And he'll use that a few times. See, see if you can uh, see it in the text there. Anytime the Bible writers use a word kind of redundantly, there's kind of a point being made. And so let me uh, begin reading chapter 5, verse 7 of James. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering, at, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord to us. Okay, so we got some work to do here. So what is perseverance? We desperately need it for our lives, or we will not be able to, we'll cave in to all the, the pressures and the problems and the suffering. And so I've got a couple words here. The word patience is used four times. And the Greek uh, understanding of that word is long-suffering or to suffer long. It's found twice in verse 7, once in verse 8, once in verse 10. And then the other word that's key to this text is steadfastness. 
It's used twice. It's, the Greek word is to hyperstand or to stand strong. It's, it's twice in verse 11. So you got patience and steadfastness. Okay, so you can see here, I've got the definition, the opposite, and then the counterfeit. You need to know all these. So that, first of all, the definition here of, of perseverance, and I believe that both of those words put together really help us to understand perseverance. So it's suffering long because we're standing strong on God's word and who God is. That's what that means. And so let me give you the definition here for perseverance. It's the ability to graciously suffer hardship without blowing up or giving up. There, there's your two fill-in-the-blanks. So ability to graciously suffer hardship, which we know the Bible is very clear about that, that in this world we will suffer hardship. And so it's the ability to graciously suffer hardship without blowing up or giving up. So what would be the opposite of that? Well, the opposite would be irritability, self-pity, grumbling or complaining resentment toward God and or others. That would be the opposite. So that would show you that you're not, you're not being resilient. You don't have perseverance. You're not being patient. So when you hear that kind of language coming out of your mouth, that irritability, self-pity, grumbling, complaining, resentment toward God and others, you're, you, you're not practicing perseverance or patience. So what would be the counterfeit for this? Well, the counterfeit would be stoicism, stoicism, stiff upper lip, you know, the, the, the Brits, the, the British, they're, they're good with stoicism. The problem with stoicism, it's a counterfeit because you can look really strong on the outside but be falling apart on the inside. That's not perseverance, that's not patience, that's just pretense is what it is, it's stoicism. It's not healthy actually. So when you're just kind of game, when you're playing the game, kind of going through the motions, you put on a good front, that's not perseverance. You've got to deal with real true perseverance comes from the inside out. So you've got to work on your heart. And so, if, and nor is it indifference. So it's not stoicism, nor was it, is it indifference. A number of years ago, I was talking with a gal, and she bragged about how patient her husband was. And I, I, was, I knew them really well, and I said, he... He's not very patient, actually. He just doesn't care about you. If you touch something that he really cares about, he will be very impatient. But you think that's impatience. That's indifference. I, I, I hate to tell you that. And it, was, it was kind of a, like, it was hard hitting for her, but it was the reality. It wasn't perseverance. He, he didn't give a rip about her or about the, her situation. He was more concerned about other things. And so that can come, sometimes come off like it's patience. We can look at people and go, oh, they're really patient. No, they don't give a rip, okay? They could care less, couldn't care less. So just keep in mind that there is a stoicism, which is a counterfeit, which strong on the outside, stressed on the inside, and then there's an indifference, couldn't care less. Now, let me give you an illustration. How many have ever seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Show of hands. Okay, so how many have never seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Show of hands. Okay, so what are you, anti-American or something? <laughs> I'm kidding, you're just joking. That's a joke, bad joke. But, uh, but it's, a, it's a good movie because I think it actually shows us, it gives us the example of the opposite, the opposite of perseverance. Let me go through the storyline here if you're familiar with the story. By the way, this is one of those movies that they play multiple times during the holidays, so we're heading into the holidays now, so you, you can watch it anywhere, pick it up anywhere. It's, it's worth watching, but uh, it's a wonderful life. George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart, who lives in Bedford Falls, 
ever since he was a little boy, dreamed of traveling the world. And as George moves, uh, as George moves into adulthood, that dream is blocked because his dad dies, and George must stay in this podunk town and run the family business. You guys know what the family business was? A savings and loan. It was a bank. And so he encounters very difficult times when his irresponsible uncle that works for him loses a large deposit and the savings and loan is about to go bankrupt and George may go to prison. It's really a frustrating part in the movie when you go there. It's like, this guy, he's an idiot. What's wrong with That's what you're thinking. That's what I was thinking. I was like, oh, it's frustrating. And so he may go to prison. So George Bailey becomes self-absorbed. Let me just say something about that. So when we go through intense suffering, the tendency is for us to become self-absorbed. Don't do that. Don't go there. We, we turn inward. And I, I, I know it's, it's for survival, but we, we make it all about us. And that's what he does. And, so, and that's our problem. Our problem is that we are self-absorbed. We become self-absorbed. The essence of sin is self-absorption. And what saves us is to get our eyes off of ourself and onto our Savior and to realize that he's bigger than anything we will ever face and he's better than any pleasure in this world. When you understand that, you live in the reality of that, it changes you. But we, we get turned inward. So George Bailey becomes self-absorbed and is irritable, filled with self-pity, grumbling and bitter at God and others and tries to kill himself by jumping into an icy cold river where an angel saves him. You guys remember the angel's name? Clarence, Clarence yeah. So Clarence, uh, angel, saves him and helps him to change his beliefs and perspective about life. She kind of walked through the story. So what's interesting about this is that, is, is that George Bailey, he blows up and gives up. Um, he blows up and gives up, but his changed perspective gives him perseverance and a willingness to face anything after that. Did you notice that? So what does he do? He goes back home, apologizes to his wife and his kids, and is willing to face prison if necessary, but the town rallies around him and it ends really nicely. I mean, it's a nice ending to the, to the story. And so I think that's a great example uh, of, of what not to do and how desperate we need to have a right perspective. Now, perseverance, patience is always related to peace. How many are familiar with the fruit of the Holy Spirit found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23? Love, joy, peace. What's the next one? Patience, peace, and patience. Patience is related to peace. Patience comes from an inner peace that knows that God is lovingly, wisely, and powerfully working all things for your good and his glory. So if you have peace, you will have perseverance, you'll have patience. If you don't have perseverance, it's because you don't have peace. George Bailey's perspective completely changed. He realized, hey, you know, my life, I do have a wonderful life. Yeah, God is working in my life. Yeah, there's a lot of things happening around me that I can't see. And so he had peace that gave him the perseverance to go back to his family to apologize and to face whatever he might need to face as a result of, of the suffering. And so, so... Patience comes from an inner peace 
that knows that God is lovingly, wisely, and powerfully working all things for my good and his glory. That can't be just a concept. It has to be a reality, and it's all over the Bible. God's in control, and he loves us, and he pursues us, and, and so it gives you the ability to graciously suffer hardship without blowing up or giving up. So when do we need it? When do we need it? Here's the next fill-in-the-blank on your, on your notes. When circumstances are uncontrollable, when circumstances are uncontrollable, notice what he says in verse 7, see how the farmer waits because the circumstances are uncontrollable. I've got to wait for the early and latter rain. That's what he's, he's thinking. Now, have you noticed there are a lot of things in life that are out of our control? Have you guys noticed that? Yeah, there's a ton of things that are out of our control. I made a list here, weather, the temperature, the wind, people's actions and reactions, who won or lost the ball game, delays in airports and waiting rooms and traffic, on-the-job irritations, disappointments, workload, and the list goes on. You could add to that list. We cannot control the circumstances, but we can control our attitude toward the circumstances. I've taught that for years. No matter what you're going through right now, it's not the events that determine how you think and feel about those events. It's your evaluation of those events. It's your perspective about those events. That's why we talk a lot about around here having a biblical worldview. Going back to the scripture, that's our reality. God is for us. He loves us. He's working all things for our good and his glory. Whether I can see it or not, I've got to believe that. I've got to trust that I've, because God's, God's word says it. He tells us that. And so we cannot control the circumstances, but we can control our attitude towards them. So what, let me ask you this. What circumstances are you facing that you're maybe not responding appropriately? You need a changed attitude. You need a changed perspective to have a changed attitude. You need to go back to, you need to know and have that peace of God that goes beyond understanding so then you can respond to it appropriately. Watching my dad slowly die before our eyes made us feel helpless. I've never felt more helpless. It was overwhelming. Watching my mom struggle, trying to take care of him, the guilt she felt when she had to finally put him into a home. We're begging her, put him into a home. You can't take care of him. We can't take care of him anymore. And she got him into a home, and then the home was not good, and then... I had to confront the gal and say, hey, what in the world's going on here? It was just like one thing after another. So we moved into another home, and then that home was not good, and then we moved to another home. It's just like, oh, my goodness. And that was just at the tail end. There were some front-end things that were very traumatic for us as a family as we were working through those things. Many of you know what I'm talking about. Many of you have had those experiences. They're totally out of your control. You can't, you're doing everything you can, but you realize, I'm not, I'm not in control here. And uh, I like what Timothy Keller says in Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Listen to what he says. When pain and suffering come upon us, we finally see not only that we are not in control of our lives, but that we never were. And if you kind of question, that's because you probably haven't gone through a lot of hard suffering. Because that's a true statement. You just go, oh my goodness. Life's out of control. I don't, I'm not in control of it. I'm, I'm not in control of any of this stuff. And this is what I found during our suffering and even in these circumstances that were uncontrollable is that suffering moves our abstract knowledge of God into a personal encounter with God. 
And uh, it's crazy, but when we were looking at my dad's dead corpse there, knowing that he was with the Lord celebrating for all eternity, we had an overwhelming sense of God's presence in that room. It's just pretty amazing. And through the love of our family and our church family, oh my goodness, God's presence, the reality of who he is and how he loves us and takes care of us has been overwhelming. It's just, it's amazing, actually. So my wife and I, uh, when we went on our sabbatical, we kept praying this prayer. It's called the serenity prayer. Are you guys familiar with it? It's a good one. It's a good prayer. So God, give us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change. What's the next one? The courage to change the things we can and the wisdom to know the difference. What happens when we try to control these things that are out of our control? It creates major irritability, self-pity, grumbling, or complaining, resentment toward God and others. So when circumstances are uncontrollable, but also notice this, number two, when people are unbearable, when people are unbearable, what do you do when people are unbearable? You unfriend them on Facebook, okay? That's what you do. That's the first thing you do. Okay, that's a joke. But, uh, but look at what it says in verse 10. It says, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. James gives us an example of the prophets. And their job was to help people change, bring them back to God. Yet time and time again, we read of the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, of people who not only didn't listen to the prophets, but they persecuted them. And yet the prophets continued to, to pray and preach to the people. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you have unbearable people in your life? Don't, don't, don't point them out in here. Some of you are a little bit too late. It's like, yes, I do. And your eyes were kind of going like this. Unbearable people. Think of the unbearable people, an antagonistic spouse, a rebellious child, coworkers you've tried over and over to get along with. Family members you dread getting together with, especially around the holidays. So you do it later on in the evening so they'll go home early. That's my suggestion, okay? That's what you do. You just say, we're not going to get together for Thanksgiving until about 8 o'clock at night. So you guys can leave at 10 because that's when we go to bed. <laughs> so two hours. <laughs> so... It is true, it is true that it is never loving to let someone sin against you. You guys know that. It's never loving to let someone sin against you. And also it is true that we should hold each other accountable. That even in includes family members. And so um, there is a middle ground in relationships. Just as there is a middle ground between frustration to crisis, as we talked about college students, they go from frustration right into crisis, and there was no middle ground. There, there should be a middle ground in our conflict going to combat that middle ground's called perseverance and patience. Make sense? And so the middle ground, actually, the Bible tells us what that middle ground is in 1 Peter 4 and Proverbs 10. Love covers a, a multitude of sins. That's the middle ground. So people will inevitably offend you, hurt you, irritate you, and even anger you. 
I have found it interesting when you go through loss that how insensitive sometimes people can even be in the midst of that. It's just, I find it really, and I'm sure I've been very insensitive myself. I know that. I know I have. But people will inevitably offend you, hurt you, irritate you, and anger you. And if you call them on it every time, you're going to have ongoing tension in relationships. Community will break down, and you'll be a very, very lonely person. And if you confront everyone who has ever sinned against you every time, then you're not going to have any friends because they're just like you. And uh, with all of the same problems, fears, and struggles that you have, you must have perseverance and pick and choose your battles when people are unbearable. So you've got to pick and choose. You've got to know when to pick the right battles and, and, and all of that. Don't nitpick. Here's the next one, when problems are unexplainable. So we're just talking about when we need perseverance, when circumstances are uncontrollable, when people are unbearable, when problems are unexplainable. Verse 11, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And, uh, and, and so here James gives us the classic example of Job who played in the Super Bowl of, of suffering. He was one of the wealthiest men who ever lived, but in a two-day period, his life fell apart. And in a series of life-blasting catastrophes, I mean, listen to what he went through. He, he went bankrupt, losing his wealth, all of his wealth, very wealthy man, losing it all, he lost his 10, 10 dearly loved children. He got an incurable, deadly disease that was very painful. And then he was part of a small group. I mean, this small group of friends who jeered and accused him. I call them miserable comforters. That's what he called them. You miserable comforters. So if you have a small group where you would title the folks miserable comforters, you need to find a new small group, okay? Uh, but, but they were pretty miserable, and God allowed the devil to take away everything in his life except his wife who told him to curse God and die. Poor man. Just when you thought she would be a source of comfort. Curse God and die. Thank you. Job was suffering in every dimension of his life, yet the worst part of Job's suffering was that he had no idea why it was happening. Job was a very God-honoring man who loved his children. In fact, the very first chapter of Job says he feared God and shunned evil. And for 37 chapters, 37 chapters, in the book of Job, God doesn't even talk to him and tell him why it's happening. It's, it's, if you've read, read through the book of Job, it's hard to read through. It's like, oh, my goodness, are we going to ever get through this? I think there's a point to that, okay? There was no apparent reason for his suffering, and of all people, Job had the right to say, why me? Now, there are a lot of things in life that don't make sense. How many would say that you have a few on that list of things that don't make sense? Show of hands, things in your life that just don't make sense, even to this day. And I just need to tell you that they might not ever make sense this side of eternity. And you've got to be okay with that. You've got to learn to trust God with that. And, uh, 
And just because you can't see a reason why God allows something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one or thousands, thousands. I believe there are thousands in his loving, wise control. And that's why it tells us in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean upon your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. It also tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we live by what? Faith, not by not by sight, not by feelings, not by what we can see. And so how do, we, how do we get it? How do we get it? It says in verse 8, establish your hearts. How do we establish our hearts? Here's the first thing. Process your disappointments through prayer. Process your disappointments through prayer. Verse 11, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. James is holding Job up as a good example. But when you, when you read the book of Job, he doesn't seem like a very good example. I mean, right off the bat, he's saying, why? Like chapter three or four, he's just like, why? Why is this happening? Why me? As he's kind of working through these things. And he doesn't seem like a very good example until you get to the end of the book. And at the end of the book uh, of Job, God affirms Job as his servant. God says, you're my servant who has spoken rightly of me, God. And, and he f- affirms that, and you gotta, you got to read to the, get to the end of the story and see that. And then God is angry with Job's friends who have misrepresented him. He says, you have misrepresented me to Job. In fact, I'm going to ask Job, and Job's going to pray for you because I'm coming down hard on you guys. So it's really fascinating as you see that. Job does a lot of things wrong, but the one thing he does right is that he never stops praying. He never stops taking it to God. He is irritable, full of self-pity, grumbling, complaining, resentful toward God and others, but he takes it all to God. He never stops taking it all to God. And so no matter how you feel, you must keep bringing it to God. I, I just don't feel like it today. Neither do I, but you've got to keep taking it to God. Of course you don't feel like it today, but you must not stop praying. You must keep pouring your heart out to him. You can't let your suffering turn you into a self-absorbed George Bailey who eventually was trying to kill himself because that's where it leads. If you don't deal with that stuff, those hits, those hurts, and you bury them, they're always buried alive. They will come after you. You've got to deal with those things. You've got to work through those things. You've got to take them to God. And you've got to not stop praying. You've got to not stop. You've got to not stop reading your Bible, not stop going to church or small group. You've got to continue to do those things. That's why I love the book of Psalms. I read five Psalms every day. The book of Psalms, this is how I would describe the book of Psalms. It is a collection of uncensored prayers straight from the heart, placing every problem we will ever face, ever face in life alongside of the unchanging goodness and greatness of God, giving us a correct proportion of things. That's what we need when we go through suffering. We need a correct proportion of things. We need to see that God is big and our problems are small in comparison to him. And that's what Psalms does as we pour our heart out to God. I was thinking about the stages of grief this last week and how easy it is to get caught in in various stages. But 
Here's kind of my way of processing it. It's not on your notes, but I'll kind of walk you through it. It's probably easy to remember. But the first thing is shock. Your world falls apart, and it creates a certain amount of denial. Shock is actually a part of what God has placed within us. Uh, there's initially shock. It's like shock absorbers on the car. Your car would rattle apart if you didn't have shock absorbers. You'd be rattled apart if you didn't have shock absorbers when you go over rough terrain or whatever. And so shock kind of helps you to absorb it little by little in your life. And your world falls apart. There's a bit of denial. And then shock goes to sorrow. Heart is breaking. There's disbelief. There's even sadness. There's even maybe some depression. So you got shock and sorrow. And then there's struggle. There's struggle. You're asking the question, why? Why me? Why this? Why now? How am I going to get through this? There's anger. There's bargaining. I didn't realize I had anger this last week until somebody flashed his brights at me on the, on the, on the freeway. And I was like, I got angry. I was just like, they came to the surface. I was like ticked off. It's like, oh, what's going on? And that anger came to the surface really quickly. I go, oh, I got anger there. I, that shouldn't have bothered me. And my perspective was really messed up, but there's a struggle, there's anger, there's bargaining, bargaining with God, there's guilt. My mom's struggling with guilt. Did I do enough for, for your dad? I don't think I did enough. I mean, she's just kind of working through all of that. And then so you go shock, sorrow, struggle, and then eventually you got to get to a place to surrender, trusting God's loving, wise control of your life. God, I surrender. And surrender leads to sanctification. And that's where God, you begin to see that God turns bad into good. Genesis 50, 20. Remember when uh, Joseph looked into the eyes of his perpetrators and said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good for what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, that's a realization. He's like, you know what? That was really hard, and that was really painful, and that was really ugly that you did that to me, but God's using it for my good so that now I can help many other people. And that takes us to the last one. That's service. God will use your pain to help others. And many of you have gone through this pain and have been very helpful to us and to me because of that, because you know, you know when someone says, oh, I know, this is what happened to me, and I know your pain, and so there's something about that. You're able to share that with them. So you got shock, sorrow, struggle, surrender, sanctification, and then service. Psalm 55, 22, it says, cast your burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will not allow the righteous to be shaken, but you've got to cast your burdens upon him. You've got to share your heart with him. You've got to pour your heart out to him. I've been doing that. I do that all the time anyway, but even more so when I take hits, like we took this last, uh, this last week, you just, man, I've just been pouring my heart out to God and God has been meeting me. In those times, as I poured my heart out to him, cast your burdens upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will not allow the righteous to be shaken. That doesn't mean you got it all together, being righteous. It means you put your faith in Jesus. If you put your faith in Jesus, you're righteous before him. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, true prayer is measured by weight, not by length. A single groan before God may have more fullness of prayer in it than a fine oration of great length. Here's the next one. Here's the next one. Stop assuming you know how things should go. So how do we get it? Stop assuming you know how things, how things should go. 
James 4, 13 through 14. This was the text that Phil taught. I did a great job with it, and it was about planning out our life. Listen to what it says. Come now, you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. We didn't know when God was going to take my dad home. Verse 11, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen, notice what it says in this, verse 11 is a powerful verse. He says, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. So we got this bigger perspective. So God has purpose in your pain. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord. Oh, and in that pain, notice what it says, and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Oh, my goodness. When you feel the, the compassion and the mercy of God, there's nothing quite like it that gives you that perseverance. So irritability, self-pity, grumbling or complaining, resentment toward God and others comes from assumed omniscience. You guys know what omniscience is? It's, it's all-knowing. And so we assume that we are all-knowing that we're smarter than God, and that's where our, our problems come from. It's a failure to trust God's loving, wise control of your life. It's impatience with God that leads to all the other impatience. Your impatience with people and circumstances and unexplainable situations because you're impatient ultimately with God. Impatience with God leads to all other impatience it's patience with God that leads to all other patience. If we're going to be patient or persevering when, when situations, circumstances are uncontrollable or people are unbearable or problems are, are unexplainable. Listen to what John Newton says. Uh, he's the guy that wrote Amazing Grace. And he says, everything is necessary that he sins and nothing can be necessary that God withholds. I read a book while uh, Nancy and I were on our sabbatical. It's called Chasing Contentment by Eric Raymond. Listen to his definition of contentment. I'm thinking about teaching uh, some of this idea maybe this next year uh, after maybe uh, Easter weekend or so on from that. Just what is contentment? How do we find it? But contentment is an inward, inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests on the providence of God. So it's, so it's an inward, it's not based on circumstances, it's gracious, it's not my work, but it's a work of God in my life. It's a quiet spirit, doesn't complain, that joyfully rests in the providence of God. You know that God's loving, wise, and in control of your life. So how do I stop assuming I know how things should go? Well, here's your choice, really. You can choose to trust God, or you can trust your perspective and go and have an ulcer, okay? That's your two choices, does that make sense? So you can either trust God or you can think you know better than God and then you're going to get be stressed out over the whole situation. So you must commit yourself to God and his ultimate plan for your life. Did you kind of wonder why he said in verse 12, do not swear, let your yes be yes and your no be no? It's kind of odd there, was it? Maybe? No, it isn't at all. He's just saying, be a person of your word. Don't make conditional promises to God. God, if you'll get me out of this, I'll serve you forever. He says, don't do that. <coughs> don't, don't do that. Here's the attitude that we should have when we go through suffering. God, no matter what happens, I'm committed to you. My life is in your hands. 
Isn't that what Job said in Job 13, 15? Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Now, we're going to move to the next few here, and we're going to be moving into communion, but, 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 but listen to this. Job never, Job never saw why he was suffering, but he saw God, and that was enough. Read the last chapter. I had heard of him, but now I've seen him, and I'm okay. I'm okay. He's got my life. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to rest in him. Job 42, 5. Number three, cooperate with God's work to grow you. Cooperate with God's work to grow you. James 1, we go all the way back to the beginning of the book. What did it say? He said, count it all joy when you encounter trials of many kinds because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance? Yeah. So let perseverance have its perfect work in you so that you might be complete and perfect, lacking in nothing. He wants wholeness in you. He wants happiness in you regardless of the circumstances, and that's what he's doing as he, as he allows the suffering in your life to produce perseverance, which brings you to wholeness and happiness in God. We read in during our uh, song time of worship, uh, Romans 5, 3 through 5, where he says, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. So here, here's the thing that you need to keep in mind. You'll never become a person who perseveres without suffering. And in fact, you don't count it all joy for the suffering, but in the suffering. Because you know, you realize that problems can drive you deeper into the love of God so that you can become wiser, deeper, stronger, and more able to help others. Listen to what Job says here. Job combines stopping his assumed omniscience and cooperating with God to grow him in these verses. Job 23, 8 through 10. Listen to what he says. It's really powerful. He says, behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand... When he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Do you hear what he's saying here? I don't understand him, but he understands me and knows and will do what is in my best for me so that I can become as pure gold. That's what he's saying. Number four, remember Christ's patience for you and presence with you. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Hebrews 12, 2 says, fix your eyes on Jesus. So the tendency for us to become self-absorbed, so you don't want to become self-absorbed. You want to become God-absorbed, and so you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured, persevered the cross, scorning its shame. It's the same word. And so, so our Savior, he was betrayed. He was abandoned. He was beaten. They blindfolded him and came up and hit him in the face, in the head. The God of the galaxies... He was spit upon. Have you ever had anybody spit at you? I've had that happen a couple times. It's, it's despicable. It's offensive. It's overwhelming. He was spit upon. He was mocked. 
His beard was plucked. He was hung on a cross. This is the ultimate example of perseverance. Why did he do this? He did this for you. He did this for you to reconcile you back to the Father. He took all of your sin upon him so that he could give you his righteousness so you could stand before God completely righteous. It's amazing. It's overwhelming. Jesus Christ saved us through his infinite costly patience, perseverance, so that now that our sins are forgiven because he died in our place for our sins, the Father can be infinitely and unconditionally patient with us despite our flaws forever, and he will never, ever leave us or forsake us. Look at him persevering for you at the cost of his life, and you'll persevere for him regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the people or problems as it turns you into pure gold. Number five, long for his coming and to be with him forever. Three times in this text he says, verse seven, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Verse eight, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse nine, behold, the judge is standing at the door. What's that talking about? It's talking about the second coming of Christ that we believe it's, it's an essential Christian belief. And what it's telling us is that one of these days he will balance the books, settle the score, make things right as the judge of the universe, but as our Savior who bore our judgment on the cross, he will wipe away every tear from our eye and everything sad will come untrue and be all the more glorious for having once been lost as we live with him happily ever after. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me as we prepare our hearts for communion this morning? Father God, help us to see that as it tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, that all that our light and momentary trials are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And as it tells us in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the perfecter, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Help us to do that now, we pray, through communion in Jesus' name. Amen. We've got three stations here. We've got a station in our overflow room. Find your way to that station. Pick up the two cups that have both the bread and the juice, and then uh, I'll lead us in the process.
It's interesting, my, my dad ran from uh, God, this false idea that he had of God for many years, possibly from his legalistic background. And didn't want to have anything to do with church for many, many years. And uh, it wasn't really until we started Desert Breeze. We started Desert Breeze to reach guys like my dad. And, um, and it wasn't until uh, he's, he had a major battle with alcoholism and uh, he began to see Christ more clearly than ever, and it began to transform his life. And he, he gave his testimony even in Celebrate Recovery that it was the love of Jesus, the love of his family, the love of this church family that, tr that helped to transform his life and set him free. And my dad realized, began to realize that uh, as, as we take these elements and what this represents is that it represents this, that we are more sinful than we ever dared to believe. We were so sinful, Jesus had to die for us. But at the same time, we're more loved than we've ever dared to dream. He loved us so much, he wanted to die for us. And when that got a hold of my dad's heart, when he began to see, it wasn't about works righteousness, it was a grace righteousness, it began to revolutionize his life. It changed him, it changed him. I began to see him soften up. He was a hard man. And I think he had a lot of pain inside that he covered up with alcoholism for many, many, many years. It was a hard battle. And yet he got through that by God's grace, and the love of his family, the love of this church family. Pretty amazing. He's with our Savior, celebrating for all eternity. And, and those of us that have put our faith in Jesus, we will be there soon. First Corinthians eleven twenty three through twenty six, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, "This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me." Let's take the bread together. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we know that the hands that hold our future are the same hands that were pierced for us so we can loosen our grip, we can rest in you. And so we do that now with our lives. We give you our lives in Jesus' name. And so next weekend uh, is the beginning of Advent, though we are finishing up James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. We're going to talk about healing, the healing that's available to us. That's how the book ends. And then next week, we'll start a Christmas series, The Wonder of the Incarnation. We'll talk about God coming, uh, becoming man. We'll look at the light, life, glory, and the power of the incarnation. So may you run with perseverance the race that is set before you as you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. And may you do that with a heart full of joy for his glory. In Jesus' glorious name, and everyone said, amen. Love you guys.